Welcome to Legacy Christian Church. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we invite you to open your Bibles as Pastor Shane brings the word. We have been going through a series called Harvest, where we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit one by one and kind of looking at uh, what, how the Bible defines those things, how Jesus exemplifies those things, and what those things look like in our lives. And on the first week of the series, we talked about how fruit is the proof of life and health and identity. And so these fruit, the, these characteristics, they're not just good moral behavior. It's not a checklist to say, oh, hey, well, as long as you're becoming more loving, then, you know, everything's fine and, you know, you can, you can be, live whatever type of life you want as long as you stick to this checklist. It's the opposite. If you are growing in your walk with Christ, if you are growing in your uh, understanding and submission to the presence of the Holy Spirit. These are qualities, these are characteristics, these are aspects of Christ-likeness that are naturally going to start manifesting in your life. These are uh, markers of a living, healthy follower of Christ. And so we've talked about kind of the, the three huge ones that start the list, love, joy, and peace. And we talked about how love and joy and peace are not emotions. They're not just, hey, you're going to be happy all the time if you're a Christian. Hey, you're going to you know, feel so enamored with every person that you meet. These are all qualities. They're characteristics. Someone who loves is someone who chooses to serve and sacrifice for others. Someone who, who is full of joy chooses to have the hope and the presence of God despite their circumstances. Someone who has peace uh, is rooted in this tranquility that surpasses understanding that comes from perspective and submission to the gospel. And, and so that's where we're at in this series. Earlier this week, I was sitting in the doctor's office and I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. You know how every like everywhere you go where you have to check in, they're always like, make sure you get there 15 minutes early. And then it's like you get there 15 minutes early and then you end up waiting a half an hour and you're like, well, I could have showed up 15 minutes late and he would have called my name at that time. It was one of those situations. I had no Wi-Fi, which was making things even more frustrating. I'm on my phone, I'm trying to read articles and stuff, and it's taking literally like five minutes just for a page to load, and then it half loads and says, sorry, no service. And I'm getting incredibly frustrated, and I'm like, I could be working on the sermon right now. I could be you know, researching and doing the stuff that I need to do so I can learn how to have patience to learn it. And I realized that we are not very good at being patient, myself included. This is uh, an area that I have tried very hard to develop. And I feel like on the exterior, a lot of times I give that off. But on the interior, I get incredibly frustrated very quickly. If things don't work the way they're supposed to, I have no patience. All the time, Rachel can attest this, one of the phrases that I say out loud the most is, why can't things be simple? Or why don't things just work? Like I, get, I, I feel like I have a decent amount of patience with people, inanimate objects, no patience. If something doesn't work, immediately I get frustrated and upset. But we, as a society, as a people, are not very good at being patient. A and we kind of view patience as sitting and doing nothing, right? Patience feels counterproductive. Patience feels like, well, I don't have time to be patient. Well, there, there's too much that I want or need to get done or, or, or whatever it may be in order to be patient. But the thing is that our impatience isn't satisfying. 
I, I was reading articles this week, not at the doctor's office, uh, about how our instant gratification is not actually gratifying. That, that study after study has shown that the things that we turn to to get immediate, feel good, ah, okay, yes, I, I satisfied this urge, always end up disappointing us. They, they did a study where they were looking at people who shop on Amazon or, or online shopping, and the way that those types of things work is they wanna hit you with the emotion, right? They want you to make an impulse buy, hey, don't think about it, don't think about whether you actually need to spend you know, $40 on an electric massager because if you think about it, you're going to go, well, do I really need any of this stuff? But if they can make you feel like, ooh, won't this make your life better? Ooh, this is a prime day deal. It's actually you know, 50% off and you better act. Oh, look at the lightning deal. Oh, 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 the bar's almost full. You better hurry up and quick purchase. And if, it, if they get you to get into that, I need to act right now, emotional. This is going to make me happy. I'm going to be so disappointed if I miss out on this deal. I'm going to be so, oh, what do you mean? It's not free next day delivery. I have to wait three days. What is this, 1999? And you get frustrated in that way. And they, when they get you into that emotional space, that's when you're most likely to click buy. But what they found in this study is that the, the time that you feel the most uh, uh, satisfaction and enjoyment and pleasure is in the moment right up until you click buy now and then as soon as you complete that your your level of satisfaction drops dramatically not when you get the package not when you use the thing you were so excited to buy a and this definitely is true for me as well I've gotten into the bad habit okay don't listen if you don't want to spend a lot of money but on Amazon on the top of the the tabs there's a tab that says today's deals and I've gotten into the really bad habit of checking that every day because I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm missing out on. I, maybe I'm missing out on something great. My life is totally fine. I'm not missing out on anything. But there's a little part of me that goes, but you might be. So I click on that every day. And there's like, you know, deals on whatever they have overstock on or whatever they're trying to move and stuff. And so uh, I am a big collector of DVDs to the point where like I'm going to have to find a deal for a bookshelf to put my new DVDs on because we've run out of space. But I'll, like I'll get DVDs and it's like, five dollars for this movie and I'm like wow I would be losing money if I didn't buy this so then I buy it and then it comes in the mail and I'm like cool and then I put it on my shelf <laughs> and the enjoyment is in the ah, I just bought this not in the oh look it's here a lot of the time I don't unwrap them a lot of the time they just stay in the box and go on the shelf and I just want it to be there but our impatience is not satisfying what they found about uh, a vacation where you go, oh, this is the thing that I'm going to look forward to and I just wish I could you know, clock out of work right now. I'm living for the weekend and I just want to get on my trip. The time of enjoyment that is highest for vacations is in the eight weeks leading up to the vacation. Not when you're on the vacation, not on the plane ride home after you've you know, had this experience that you were so looking forward to, not, on, you know, and not in any part of the actual thing. It's in the, the time leading up to the vacation where, when it's all in your head, when it's all just conceptual. Science and psychology confirm what the Bible said thousands of years ago, that there is incredible value in waiting and being patient. Our satisfaction is in the waiting, which again, feels counterintuitive. Feels like that can't be true. No, that's not me. I really enjoy things. We don't. It's in the waiting. In a lot of ways, the Bible is a story about waiting and patience. The word that the Bible uses for patience, uh, it doesn't mean inaction. It doesn't mean just doing nothing. It means the restraint of action. It, it means a conscious choice to not do something. 
the, the conscious choice, in, a lot, in some cases it's a legal term, that means the conscious choice to not exercise your legal right to do something. Or the conscious choice to not react with anger or aggression or retaliation until a later time. Patience is not just, hey, sit and do nothing. Hey, go kill some time. Patience is a choice, like love, like joy, like peace. It's not just sitting and doing nothing. It's the choice to do something or to refrain from doing something. Like I said, the Bible is a story of waiting and of patience. In the very beginning, God creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth and he, he creates the Garden of Eden and he puts man and woman in the garden and they live in this perfect harmony and this is the only time in human history where there is no waiting. There is no need for patience. There isn't something they're looking forward to. There isn't something, oh, I can't wait until this. Everything is in the present. Everything is in the moment because that was all that they needed. It was all that they wanted. Very quickly, they sin. They, they, they damage their relationship with God. They, they allow sin into creation. Everything in the world becomes tainted by sin. Humanity becomes tainted by sin. We will become infected fully with sin. We will start to die physically. We die spiritually. The whole world becomes broken. And, and in chapter 3 of Genesis, God makes the first promise for the future. Everything up until Genesis 3 is present. And then God makes a promise about the future. He, as he's punishing Adam and Eve and the snake, he promises to send a Messiah who will destroy sin. A Messiah who's going to end this war between humanity and sin. And this is the beginning of the waiting. From this point on, people will wait for this to happen. They'll wait for this promise to come true. And so humanity waits, but not patiently. Humanity doesn't refrain from action knowing that this is coming. Instead, humanity falls further and further into their sin. And so God chooses to go a different route for how his relationship with humanity is going to look. And he picks Abraham and he says, I'm going to turn you into this nation and I'm going to send that Messiah that I promised through you. Now wait. And Abraham has to wait for 25 years before that son is born. And again, Abraham doesn't do a very good job of waiting patiently. He gets impatient and, and he sleeps with his wife's handmaid in order to, to, to get her pregnant so that he can force this to happen in his timing and it blows up the whole situation and it, it, it leads to generations of conflict and, and uh, division that are still playing out in the world today. Abraham can't wait patiently. Eventually, he has a son. The son has a son and, and they turn into a nation and this nation becomes enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses and Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. God delivers his people and he says, now I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you this promised land and I am going to be your God. But first, wait and do nothing. Israel has left Egypt. They're trying to escape out to the promised land, but they hit the Red Sea and they go, well, where are we supposed to go from here? It's just water. And Pharaoh has changed his mind and is attacking and saying, you know what, I actually liked having the, the Hebrews as slaves. Let's go, let's go bring them back. And so he sends his army out towards them and the people are stuck between the sea and Pharaoh's army. And God's command is, wait. Moses says this in Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, 
stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, they shall never, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So just sit there, do nothing, don't say anything. Let God handle this. Just wait patiently. Refrain from action. Know that you could fight back. Know that you could try to swim across the Red Sea. Know that you could take a course of action. But what I'm asking you to do is trust God. Do not do anything and watch the deliverance that happens. And of course, God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites escape. And then as Pharaoh's army tries to follow, he, he stops parting the Red Sea and they're completely destroyed. This becomes their theme over and over and over again over the course of Israel's history. They have to learn how to wait patiently for God to deliver them. Your first point is this. The Bible defines patience as waiting on God's deliverance in His timing. And those last three words are the key part of that. In His timing. Because we all want God's deliverance, right? If I said, hey, whatever situation you're dealing with, whatever is going on, God is going to save you. The, the most powerful being in the universe is going to show up and work a miracle and make things right. You'd be like, yeah, that's awesome. And if I said, and you have to wait 25 years for it, you'd be like, oh, no, that, no. Israel waits in slavery for 400 years. That, that is the promise God makes to Abraham when he tells him that he's going to turn him into a nation. That, hey, you're gonna, I'm going to turn your descendants into a nation and they're going to be in slavery for 400 years and then they're going to come out of that and go to the promised land. I showed up to you and said, hey, great things are going to happen. But you've got to wait 400 years for it. No, no, no. Not that. Give me the deliverance, but make it in my timing. Let me decide how and when it happens. God, you do the thing. You, you are, you know, powerful. I can't make that happen. But uh, let me decide when it happens. That's not how it works. And Israel gets stuck in this cycle where they try to force it in their timing. They sin. God allows them to fall into their sin. Then he sends someone to oppress them. Then they cry out to him. And then he sends someone to deliver them. And everything is good. And then the cycle resets. And they fall into this over and over and over again. Last small group season, we went through the book of Judges that, that chronicles this cycle where it's just over and over and over again. They do this. And finally, at the end of that, they say, hey, how about instead of these you know, judges you keep sending us, give us a king. God says, That's, I'm supposed to be your king. And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but give us a human king king anyway. And so Saul becomes their king. In 1 Samuel 13, 1, it says this, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back, home, he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines' outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown th throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were, were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army had been hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. This is the first real test of Saul's kingship. He is 
desperate for God to save them. Basically, he stirs the hornet's nest. He, he, he starts this, this skirmish with the Philistines and he's not prepared for the response that comes. And so they end up with the two camps set up for war. Saul's group is hopelessly outnumbered. They are terrified. Some of them desert and go and run. Some of them are, the ones that are with him still are shaking in fear. And he's going, okay, God, if you don't show up and bless us in this next battle, we are going to get wiped out and my kingship is going to be incredibly short-lived. He's desperate. What he needs is for the prophet Samuel, who, who is the mouthpiece of God, to show up and offer a sacrifice and, and see the you know, heavens part and hear God say, yeah, go attack the Philistines. And then all of the people will be encouraged and they'll go and they'll fight and they'll win the war the way that they have over and over again throughout their history. Whenever they've been outnumbered and God has said, but I'm on your side, they win. When God's deliverance shows up, they win. So they wait. Samuel's nowhere to be found. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and the troops start going, maybe I should get out of here. It's been days. We don't have the blessing of God. The, the prophet isn't here to get the blessing of God. We have no shot without God. Maybe I should go run and save myself. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. It's been a week, and Samuel still hasn't shown up. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. He needs God's deliverance, but the timing isn't going the way that he wants to. And so he takes things into his own hands. He disobeys God's instructions and he offers the sacrifice himself instead of waiting. He's not authorized to do this. Only the prophet was supposed to do it. The king wasn't supposed to do this. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. He's like, Dude, you weren't here. We needed this and you were nowhere to be found. So I just did it. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Because Saul was impatient and he didn't trust God, he is rejected as king. And Samuel tells him that someone else will replace him. Saul continues to fall into his sin and Samuel tells him that the, king, the, king, the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Saul goes, okay, I've messed up. Please don't take away my calling to be king. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Saul is so desperate to hold on to control, to hold on to his timing, that, to hold on to his power and authority and position that he rips Samuel's robe and that torn cloth becomes the symbol of his vain efforts 
to hold on. David is then anointed king. David trusts God for his deliverance and he, he has this confirmed in front of the whole nation when he kills Goliath the next day. And, and Saul tries to kill David because he's jealous. And so David flees out into the wilderness and Saul chases him out there. This happens in 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Okay. I don't know why it plays out this way, but it's pretty funny. So Saul is desperately trying to find David. He has 3,000 men with him. And, David, and Saul was like, you guys stay out here. I'm going to go uh, do my business in this cave. And he comes in. And as he's in a very vulnerable position, David and his men are like, what in the world? That's the guy who's trying to, that's the guy we're at war at. And, and he's just there, completely unaware, completely unprotected, totally vulnerable. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They're like, This is the sign, David. Like, what more could you want? You, you couldn't have an easier kill. We've seen you take down a giant with a slingshot. This guy is doing his business, and he's you know, completely unaware in a dark cave. You've got him. David's men want him to kill Saul and end this struggle end this war. They say, take it into your own hands and just kill him right now. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I shall do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All David does is cut off the corner of his robe and even that he feels bad about. But he goes, hey, this isn't for us to take into our own hands. We don't do this. God's going to deal with him. God has his timing for his deliverance. We don't get to determine that. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. He goes, hey, I could have done it. Look, here's the proof. But I didn't. David calls out to Saul and he shows him the robe as proof. Saul was so desperate to hold on to control and to do things in his timing that he ripped Samuel's robe. And David was so willing to submit to God's timing, even if that meant that he would spend the next several years of his life running for his life, living in caves, hiding from his, his kinsmen because they were trying to kill him that all he did was cut the corner of Saul's robe. Throughout the rest of his life, David learns this lesson over and over and over again. He's continually put into positions that require him to wait on God's deliverance in God's 
timing. If you read through the Psalms, many of which David wrote over and over and over again, the message of them is, God, I need your help. Please, it looks hopeless. Deliver me in your timing. And yet I know that I can trust you and I know that that you are ultimately going to play out your plan. David becomes a symbol of Israel's ideal leader and ruler. And God promises that the Messiah will come from David's lineage and that he will establish an eternal kingdom. So Israel waits and waits and waits, but they're impatient and they turn to kings and idols and false messiahs. And after hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting, Jesus finally arrives and he is the Messiah that was promised and he brings the deliverance of God and he heals and redeems and restores humanity. On the last night before his death, he has already exemplified love in washing his disciples' feet. He's exemplified joy in showing them how the the, the pain of the moment is going to be superseded by the, the joy of the new life that is coming. And he's exemplified peace in his willingness to, to uh, have the perspective and the presence of God beyond the situation that he's about to find himself in. Now, he's going to embody patience by modeling obedience to God's plan and timing. In Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, it says this, and he came out from the upper room where they had just taken the Passover. And when he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus could have taken things into his own hands. He could have forsaken the plan. He could have said, "Eh, you know what? I'm not doing this. No, I'm going to do it this way. Or or, not tonight, God. Let's push this down the road. I'll do it on another Passover, another time. But he chooses to submit to God's plan and timing. Your next point is this. Jesus exemplifies patience through his adherence to the plan. He sticks to God's plan and timing and he allows himself to be killed. Then he resurrects and he proves that he's God. He proves that he's the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. He appears to people on earth for 40 days after his resurrection Then he ascends to heaven, but he promises to return one day. This is the period that we are in. We are still waiting for this. In preparation, in preparing his followers for this period, for his departure, he tells them this parable in Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus says, you, you know what it's going to be like when I leave and, and you're waiting for me to come back? It's going to be like this night, where, where uh, a night before a wedding where, where the groom is coming and all of the, the bridesmaids are waiting for him to show up so that the reception can start. And he takes longer than you think he's going to take. And you all fall asleep. And when you wake up, half of you are ready for him and half of you are not. And the ones that are not are going to miss out. And Jesus says, you don't know when I'm coming back, so be ready. It's going to be longer than you think. When Jesus is first telling this, I'm sure the disciples thought, okay, so like a week, a month, maybe three years, 40 years at the most, right, Jesus? Like this, this is happening in our lifetime. And Jesus is telling them, this, like, no, 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 this is going to go on longer than you think. Be prepared. Be ready because you don't know when it's going to happen. Don't get lulled into inactivity. Don't get lulled into thinking, ah, we're just waiting and waiting and this is so pointless and, and, and get frustrated or, or fall off of what you're supposed to be doing. Some are going to grow impatient, but those who stay ready and wait patiently will be rewarded. The Apostle Paul says that all of creation is now in this period of waiting for, the, for Christ to return. Romans 8, 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Everything in existence is waiting for Christ to return. Everything will be different then. From the beginning, from Genesis 3, the world has been broken. Humanity has been broken. And at the moment of Christ's return, everything will be different. And everything is waiting for that moment. The Holy Spirit is described as a down payment on our souls. There's a period when you buy a house in between when you put the down payment down and when you get the keys and get to move in. That's the period that we're in. We have the down payment. We, we, we have the, the salvation. We have the Holy Spirit. But we don't have the key yet. We're not living in our, our, our house yet. And Paul goes, man, once we get to that moment, everything is going to be different. So what do we do while we wait? Some people in Paul's time, uh, in Second Thessalonians, they quit their jobs and we're like, well, I'm not going to work. If Christ is coming back next week, forget that. I'm not going down and making tents or whatever. I I'm going to go chill and enjoy my life until he comes back. And Paul says that's not the way it's supposed to happen. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. 
because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil we labor and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul goes, hey, hey, don't confuse patience with inactivity. This isn't, uh, hey, you've been saved, so now you're just in heaven's waiting room. Just go do whatever you want to do. Go chill, go hang out, and uh, don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, we, we still have work to do. We, we are still meant to be active in this period. We aren't just sitting around killing time. We are building toward the moment that we are waiting for. And so your last point is this. For us, patience looks like remaining faithful. It's easy to grow weary in doing good the longer time goes on. The last couple weeks have been incredibly tumultuous in the world. Right? There's activity in Israel. There were earthquakes in the Middle East. There was an eclipse that made the moon look like blood. And a lot of people were like, oh, so this is the end. Like, oh, so, so this is Revelation. This is the apocalypse. But what was really discouraging and sad is that so many of those people who believed that and thought like that, their solution was, so I'm going to run to my bunker. Or so I'm going to not be around people and I'm going to you know, go head out and I'm going to go wait in my safe place. You don't know when the end is. The, the, the honest truth is that you will probably end before the world does. The odds that, that the world is going to end in our lifetime, not great. Right? For, for 2,000 years, people have thought, man, we're going to be the ones that see Christ return. Odds are not great that you're the one. You don't know when it is. Jesus' whole point, you don't know the day or the hour when your life ends or when the world ends. We act like we know. We act like, oh, I, I've got time to do that. Oh, I don't feel like doing that this week. I'll do that then. The Bible says it's the opposite. Patience is not waiting and doing nothing. Patience it is refraining from doing the other things so that we can be active in working towards this moment, towards the end, whether that's our personal end or, or, or our communal end. It's easy to grow weary from doing good. It's easy to get frustrated and discouraged. Last night, uh, one of the, the best moments of the night when we were putting on the, the, the harvest party was I looked over and in the middle of all this fun and Ghostbusters is blaring through the speakers and kids are knocking cans over with a slingshot and uh, winning pumpkins and things like that. And uh, Rachel's crying. I'm like, what is going on? Why are, why are you crying? And she said, this is what, it's been you know, three years of building and now we get a moment like this where we can see a communal impact, where we can see you know, uh, hundreds of faces of people who we are actually affecting. And the buildup and the work to that moment makes it more satisfying. We're not just putting, okay, I bought this DVD on Amazon, instant gratification. We have patiently been working and building. All of you have been patiently working and building three years ago if we just instantly said okay 
when we first planted the church, when we first moved here and started, if you told me, hey, 125 people are showing up tomorrow, we would have gone, oh no, <laughs> we can't do that. We did not have the infrastructure. We didn't have the support. We didn't have the team. We didn't have the building. We had nothing. We didn't have the ability to do any of that. And there have been times throughout the last three years where it's discouraging, where it's frustrating, where, where we grow weary from doing what we know we're supposed to do. And we're like, God, when do we just get the payoff? And to have nights like last night that are not the payoff, but are, are you know, just a, a part along the way to go, oh, this is why we've been working and building. This is why. To look around the room and see the people who, you know, we, we've been pouring into and, and have been part of, you know, our small groups and have been showing up and have been growing and all of that over the last three years and to see them serving and to see them interacting with the community and to see, oh, makes a lot more sense. Too many Christians go, okay, I got saved. I'm going to be patient, God, and I'm going to wait for you to return over here, away from everybody else because they're sinners and I don't want to be corrupted by them. That's not what it looks like. Our patience is about refraining from doing the things that we would normally do, refraining from acting in the way that we would normally act. And while we wait, being faithful to our calling and working towards the moment where Christ returns. Right after this parable uh, of the ten virgins, Jesus tells the parable of the talents, which is basically, this guy goes out of town, he leaves his money to three of his different servants, and they're supposed to do something with it while he's gone, and when he comes back, they report back to him on what they've done, and the ones who have done something with it and have, have earned more with it, he goes, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he rewards them, and the one who says, here's your money back, I didn't do anything with it, he says, then get out of here. Patience is not just sitting and doing nothing, working and building towards this moment so that when Christ returns and he goes, okay, I gave you my Holy Spirit. I gave you, I entrusted you with the ministry of reconciliation. What did you do with it? And you go, well, I sat quietly and waited for you. Why? <laughs> That's not good enough. It's not what you were supposed to do. Situations can be difficult we can long instant gratification. We can long control. We can long our timing. We can be scared. We can be desperate for God's deliverance. We can grow weary even from doing good. We can get tired. We can get lazy. We can lose focus. But we are called to be faithful and to continue Christ's ministry of reconciliation until He returns. What do we do with this? Real quick, your application. Stay ready. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you have more time than you do. You don't know. Today could be your end. Or 50 years from now. Jesus says you don't know the day and the time. So act like you're always on guard. Always be ready. Always be living your life in a way that is prepared for Christ's return. And that doesn't mean a bunker. That doesn't mean a safe room. It means fulfilling the calling that you have been called to. It means pointing others to Christ. It means being personally faithful in, in the way that you're living in your submission and obedience to the gospel. Your next point. Control what you can control. Don't be inactive. Be patient. Do what you can do. 
don't step outside of that and try to control things that are meant for God to control. But what he's entrusted you with, with the things that he said, here, you can do these things. Go do those things. Whatever gifting you've been given, use it. Whatever ways that you can be growing his kingdom, whatever things that you can be doing, do them. Be patient, not inactive. And your last point, remain faithful. Hold on to your faith. Rely on him for deliverance in his timing. Keep working to build his kingdom. Keep working towards that moment of his return. We are not very good as individuals, as a society, as a world, at being patient. We want everything now. We want instant results. We want instant gratification. Technology has exacerbated that, right? Things that used to take a week and we just accepted it, now they can be done instantly. And if they're not done instantly, then we get frustrated. And it's even worse when it comes to wanting God's deliverance. When we're in the difficult situation, when we're in a, a moment of frustration, when we're growing weary, we go, God, why can't you just do it now? But patience looks like remaining faithful and submitting to both God's deliverance, but in His timing. It's that submission of, you don't know best. Yes, it might be great for your personal relief if this situation worked out right this second. But God has a plan of deliverance that is greater than what we know or could understand and we submit to it and we play our part in it but we allow him to control the timing let's pray God I thank you God I thank you that you are the one in control that you are the one who, who determines the timing Lord there are so many times in my life where I just want you to show up right away where, where I just want it to happen immediately because it hurts because I'm scared because it would be great if you did. But God, I recognize that you will bring your deliverance in your timing. And God, that's really hard to accept sometimes. Lord, I pray that you would grow your patience in me. Holy Spirit, that, that you would cause that fruit to grow. But Jesus, if, if you were willing to submit the Father's plan and timing that we would be able to do so also. And Jesus, as we wait for your return, as we long for it, as it would be amazing for heaven to start now, for, for, for the next life to begin today, God, for every moment that it doesn't, pray that we wouldn't waste time, that we wouldn't kill time, that we wouldn't sit and do nothing that we would be patient, not inactive. God, that we would refrain from the actions of living the life that we would normally live, of doing the things that we would normally do, so that you can use us to live faithfully, so that you can use us to do the things you've called us to do, so that you can use us to continue your ministry of reconciliation, to continue building your kingdom, so that on that day, when you do return, when the waiting is finally over, this wasn't wasted time that our lives are not lived in such a way that you look at us and say what did you do with the time that I gave you nothing you just sat and waited you just did whatever you wanted to do but God that you would look at us and say well done my good and faithful servant 
you've entrusted us with these lives and that we would use them to build your eternal kingdom. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray that you would be glorified. In your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.